The Gist is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99 are a great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code GIST to double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use the code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 11th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The No Child Left Behind Act, that is gone. And with it, an era passes too. An era where our society didn't want to leave children behind. Now we're fine with it. I'm not saying we're going to leave all the children behind. Maybe Hunter McGregor of Federal Way, Washington. Him. He's the one we'll leave behind. The era I'm actually talking about are acts and laws with grandiose, over-promising legal names. Propagandistic names. So leave no child behind. That was one of those where you say, well, how could you argue against it? Same with the partial birth abortion ban. Oh, I'm against that. Really? So you're for partial birth abortion? See, it defines it defines the act and therefore wins or circularly reasons against the conversation. So this is the problem with the leave no child behind act. Not too much of a problem that it wasn't overcome, but I think it was a little bit of an obstacle. You know, wow, we're against children. There was a uh, there was a time it was uh, maybe 30 years ago where this really got going. I mean, there were acts that got nicknames like, you know, your COBRA, right? That the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. That was 1985. That didn't really help anyone that that was called COBRA. That's kind of a venomous snake. But then they said, hey, what if we package the Health Omnibus Programs Extension in 1988 and we call that HOPE? And what if a few years later we talk about the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resource Emergency Act, the CARE Act, or more recently, wow, here's a big one. The Service Act for Care and Relief Initiatives for Forces Injured in Combat Engagements, Sacrifice. Oh, there was the Happy Act, the Humanity and Pets Partnering Through the Years Act. Oh, there was the Cuts Act. That's the cut. I hate, I hate when an acronym starts with the word that it's acronymizing. But anyway, that's the Cut Unsustainable and Top Heavy Spending Act. I have a proposal for all these acts. I have a law against them. It's called the Stop Hasty Unwise Terms Describing Acts Heretofore Entitled Logically, Literally, Unpretentiously, and Properly. The Shut the Hell Up Act. Just shut the hell up. I know the person who could institute this act. It's Carly Fiorina. You might know her from her Carly for America pack. Oh, I'm not Car- uh, yeah, I guess it does have her first name, but we mean the conservative, authentic, responsive leadership for you and for America because you're not allowed to have the candidate's name in your pack unless it's an acronym. Go, Carly. So today's an Antan Twig. We'll spiel about that. But first, you know, a year ago, a euro was worth a buck and a quarter. Six years ago, it was worth a dollar fifty. A few days ago, it was down to a dollar six cents. The euro is weak. The dollar is strong. The mountain is high. The valley is low. And you're about to take a free ride on the currency train with noted economics reporter and bon vivant Adam Davidson. Adam, by the way, was hired to consult on a new film called The Big Short, starring Ryan Gosling, Christian Bale, and Steve Carell. He's not talking about that. Not this time. He's talking about currencies. Sherry's Berries. I used to hear on other podcasts people talking about Sherry's Berries. And then Sherry's Berries came to me and they said, we'd like to advertise on your show and we'd like to give you some berries. Fine, I said. Let me try the berries. I was blown away by two, maybe two and a half things. The first thing I was blown away with 
was the quality of the berries or the quality of the chocolatey, the dark and white and the milk, all that combined into this berry. It's just a great taste and the kind of thing you'd never get for yourself. But if someone else gives them to you, you're like, wow, that's a great berry. I don't know. There are a few things where someone gives them to you and you say, that's it. I'm definitely going to start going to Ren Fairs. I definitely, from this point forward, am going to be a Midori drinker. It just, for some reason, I'm going to go out and get my own gift berries never happens, and yet everyone loves them as a gift. So that's blown away by thing one. Blown away by thing two. I love the packaging. I love just getting something sent to my door. Third, or maybe the second half thing I was blown away by, it's Sherry's berries. I always thought it was Sherry's berries, and I would recommend that Sherry change her name. But she's not going to because she's sitting on this sweet, sweet berry mountain. Here are the details. For $19.99, a 40% off savings, you could send someone some sweet, freshly dipped strawberries. For just $10 more, you could double the amount of berry. I can't really do the math. I think that, that amounts to a 60% discount on what would be a double amount of berries. You go to berries.com, that's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. You click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and you type in the gist, and then you can start sending your berries today. The European Central Bank. It's one of those phrases that with the utterance of every component of the name gets less and less interesting. European, ooh, Central bank. I guess to hook you into this discussion, I could tell you two things. One, the dollar will be talked about. We all love the dollar. And two, there are like maybe two or three things more important in the world. So pay attention. The European Central Bank and the dollar have been going in different directions. A whole morass of international issues are scooped up in what's going on. And to talk us through it is Adam Davidson. Adam Davidson is the founder of NPR's Planet Money, and he has a great podcast from Gimlet called Surprisingly Awesome. It is. He's also a consultant with uh, his co-host in Surprisingly Awesome. His co-host is Adam McKay, who's the director the movie The Big Short, and uh, Adam consulted on that. He's also wearing a pink shirt, if I list every one of his credentials. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing very well. I really like the pink shirt. Am I right? The European Central Bank, all these, and what the Fed, which is the U.S. version of the U- European Central Bank, what we're going to do with interest rates, incredibly important. I really want to go back to the pink shirt. I yeah. spilled some coffee on it, and I know. that's really bummer. I don't want to call it a pink and slightly, slightly brown shirt. Yeah. So... I'd say as a financial journalist, as someone who tries to explain finance to a broad public, the biggest bummer in my life is realizing that the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, are the two most important institutions in the world. They have a huge impact on everybody's daily life. And in over a decade of trying, I have yet to be able to really make them sound fascinating and exciting to a broad lay audience. Yes. I and th- for me, as a former sports journalist, it was the same with me in Major League Baseball's Rule 5 free agents. But I'm just analogizing. Yeah, that sounds really boring. My thing is actually important and yeah. really affects people. I'm just <laughs> going to point that out. So, And part of that is the nature of central banks. I will just point out that I think of a central bank, and particularly the U.S. Central Bank, but also the European Central Bank, as kind of setting the base pace, the kind of drumbeat of the overall economy. You want that drumbeat to be slow and steady, to move very gradually. You want it to be controlled by very calm, reasonable people who respond very reflectively and slowly. You do not want that drumbeat to be like 
for example, the current Republican presidential primary season where you have lots of hysterical people screaming things in all sorts of directions. So the very existence of modern central banks, which depending on which one you choose as the first modern central bank, it's 100 years old, 150 years old, 200 years old, is to take out of the hurly-burly, the exciting world of breaking news and politics and yelling and war and, and create this quiet, slow drumbeat. And most of the time, most of the 20th century, for example, the average American had no need to really listen to that drumbeat. They had no real need to know that drumbeat was there. My argument would be that today, if you want to know what kind of job you're going to have in the future, what, how you're going to afford a house, how you're going to afford having your kids going to school, it probably is worth knowing a bit about that drumbeat. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's still really hard to explain. It's still can be really boring. Well, it, one interesting thing is if the if the central bank is supposed to be this calm, cooling saucer, steadying drumbeat, what has gone on with the euro, the currency of the euro, in the last four months has not been calm at all. I mean, there's been a huge devaluation against the dollar, against every other currency. And I think the layman might know this, especially if you're an international traveler. Thing, a few years ago, was worth $1.50. Now it's worth like $1.05 or $1.10. But the European Central Bank itself has been very slow to respond and very throughout. I mean, it's been a very dramatic decade for the euro. And the European Central Bank throughout has been very slow to act. So, for example, last week, a lot of people, I'd say most people looking at the European Central Bank were like, OK, they finally get it. Growth is incredibly slow in Europe. People are really struggling. They need to take some big, aggressive activity to get this economy moving again. Now, it happens to be that doing that would lower the value of the euro because it ultimately, there's various mechanisms, but it ultimately means there's more euros out there. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, the more, as a general rule, the more of a currency there is, each individual currency is worth less, if that makes sense. But that you actually- Totally makes sense. You Glad want that. Like what Europe wants is Americans and Chinese and Japanese people to be buying stuff from Europe. And so- we want tourists to say, my word, it's never been cheaper to go to Paris or even better, Athens. Mm -hmm. And we want... Or buy a or buy Cadbury a, egg. Are they still made in England? I have Why no is that the first one? And I England isn't in the Buy a La Car. Yeah. <laughs> buy a La Car. Buy a Le Sports Sack or whatever. <laughs> Le Coq Sportif. <laughs> Le Coq Sportif. Or buy a giant robotic machine tool from Germany rather yeah. than from General Electric. Or, Either that I don't or think a Cadbury General, Egg. Huh? Or a Cadbury Egg. Yeah. So I think what a lot of people want in Europe is a much more devalued euro. And we talk about aggressive action on the part of a central bank, which they have a bunch of tools and that's where it gets technical and boring. They can basically print more euros. They can lower the interest rates even more for banks. They can do this thing called quantitative easing you hear about where they basically buy longer dated bonds. It's a, I don't think we need to get into all the specifics, but the ECB took the most tepid version of action. They took the smallest version of action rather than the kind of aggressive action people have wanted for a long, long time. And, and they wanted aggressive for a central bank. Knowing even what central banks do, this was tepid even for a central bank. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, we're always talking about fractions mm -hmm. of a percent. Right. You know, we're, we're talking about in fact, there's such fractions are so boring that they invented this new term called basis points, right? Which is a way of not saying 0.1 percent every time, right? A hundred yeah. basis points would 
would be one percent. Yes. So we talk point about oh one percent would be one, one basis. Point. One basis. Hey, it went up ten points. It's really point one percent. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. So one important thing always to think about with the European Central Bank is it represents a whole bunch of very different countries. So Germany is a highly, obviously highly modern, technically advanced economy with long-time trade surplus. It has a lot of money in the bank. And right now the economy is doing well, especially compared to its neighbors. Doing reasonably yeah. well. Greece is basically exactly a, a moribund agrarian economy. Italy is both. Northern Italy is an awful lot like Germany. Southern Italy is an awful lot like Greece. And the U.S. Fed has this to an extent. The interests of Mississippi are not the same as the interests of New York City, and the interests of New York City are not the same as upstate New York, for example, or Silicon Valley or Illinois. But when you have something of a political union, it's hard to call the United States a place with deep political union these days, but at least we do have an actual federal government. Europe doesn't have that. So the deep differences of opinion and the different views between Germany and Greece, Spain, Italy, the smaller Holland, um, Denmark, et cetera. In America, the political problems are political problems. We, we think of presidential elections. We think of the Speaker of the House fight. We think mm -hmm. of congressional battles. In Europe, weirdly enough, the core venue, the place where this can happen is the European Central Bank. That is where Germany imposes its will on Greece. And that's where Greece, you know, raises their angry fist. So is that an explanation for why the stimulus they just offered was tepid? The central banker, the head of the bank, is Mario Draghi. He's Italian. The Germans didn't want the stimulus. Greece, of course, would want it. He's caught between these constituencies. Is that what's going on? I mean, what you have is Germany is so powerful, is so important. It would not be totally out of line to call the ECB the European Central Bank or the you know, the Eurozone as the Germany plus zone. It is mm -hmm. if NAFTA led us to an actual, which I think there has been talk in the past of a North American currency where it's the U.S., Canada and Mexico, you would know that it's basically the U.S. dollar and yes. Canada and Mexico get to complain, but they don't actually have any power. Maybe it's like Puerto Rico in the U.S. Congress. I, I would guess Puerto Rico has more power in the U.S. Congress than Greece does in the European Central Bank. So yeah, um, both are defaulting as we speak. <laughs> as we speak. So there's a lot of analysis of why Germany is so resistant to what I would say the vast majority of economists, the IMF, which is a very conservative organization, are calling on the ECB to do, which is to embrace some inflation, to allow the currency to fall in value so as to sell more exports and to reinvigorate the economy, get people back well, to work. Germany's less tourist-based than a lot of the other lesser members. So They're that's... also a very successful exporter, as is. Okay, they're... so it's not that they don't export. It's that they don't, they're not desperately in need of the currency. No, they're very good exporters. Yeah. Yes. But in general, a lower currency is better for exporters. But if you're already good at it... Unless yeah. Yeah. a lot of your exports are to other people within the Eurozone, ah. and which is the case. Got it. So a cynical reading of, of the entire Euro experiment is it was a device to allow Greek and Spanish and Italian companies to borrow money cheaply to buy German goods. And that is, in fact, what happened. It so worked. <laughs> it worked very well. So the other thing that people always bring up, and, and I honestly don't know how I feel about this or what to think about this, but Germany is clearly deeply scarred by the hyperinflation of the post-World War I 
Weimar Republic. And the inflation rates were literally in the millions of percent. It was insane. Wheelbarrows of money. Wheelbarrows of money. And buying your steak in the morning because it'll double in price by the afternoon. Yeah. And a lot of people say when Germans hear inflation, they think Hitler. That's going to lead to Hitler. And I think what we're talking about now is hoping that inflation just goes to what is a natural place for inflation to be, which is around 2%. I think most macroeconomists would say, like, if you can get inflation to 2% and keep it there, that's great. That's the official Fed target. But a fair number of economists would say, actually, at a time like this, Europe really needs inflation of 4%. That's not crazy. It's not something you'd notice on a day-to-day basis, but it is something that would kind of create an impetus to spend a little more, for companies to invest a little more rather than hold on to their cash. It creates the conditions for more exports, for more tourists, because it does depreciate the value of the currency. And 4% clearly is not 10 million percent. So Germany's piggishness on this is... Schweinishness. Schweinishhund. You know, it's one of the great global confusions. And then... Mario Draghi's support of that is also one of the great puzzles in the world. If we could go back to 2008, 2009, when the whole global economy was falling apart, 2010, when Greece really starts falling apart, and Europe was in a much worse recession than we were, and we were in a really, really, really bad one. Clearly, the best practices, I mean, the the best practices that could get a majority of thoughtful people to agree is you wanted four levers all at once. You wanted the U.S. government to be spending a lot more money Mm -hmm. on infrastructure projects and the like. You also wanted all the European governments to be doing that. And you wanted the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank to do the same. So you wanted, you'd also want England to do this, China Mm -hmm. to do this, Japan to do this, but you really- Massive worldwide stimulus. Yeah, but you really wanted the U.S. and Europe to use what we call fiscal and monetary tools, government spending, building a bridge, building roads, and monetary stimulus, meaning lowering the value of the currency, putting more currency out there. Of those four tools, we got like one and a half. You know, we got an $800 billion stimulus from the U.S. government. Would you consider that one or the half? That's the half. Like it probably should have been double or more. You know, the U.S. Fed did go pretty aggressively. They're about as aggressively as they could. Can't take the interest rates below zero. Yeah. Um, Actually, you can. The ECB is right (laughs) now at negative (laughs) 0.3, but in their discount rate. So, but Europe did very little on the fiscal side and uh, much less than was hoped for in the uh, monetary side. And so... But, the, you know, we, we, they do live in democracies and their people voted in austerity governments. What are you going to do? Yeah. They were wrong. Yeah. 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 So let's end with a prediction. With the euro so low, with the dollar so strong, what, what does it mean in a year? Right now, I would much rather like invest in an American company than European company probably for the next year if I wanted to make money in the next year. But I'd much rather go on vacation in Europe with dollars than I'd want to go on vacation in the U.S. with euros. So I think the Europe, for a whole bunch of reasons, and this is just one of them, I think the European economy is going through a profound shift from one view of itself to another view. And it's not doing a particularly elegant job at that transition, and they have huge challenges ahead of them that the U.S. just doesn't have. So really good for tourists. I'm guessing we'll be able to get French wine for cheaper a year from now. But if you have a 20-year-old who has dual citizenship in the U.S. and Europe, I'd tell them, like, try and find a job in the U.S. That's probably a better bet. All right. Keen insight, good advice, and terrible news for residents of Vienna or Lisbon planning to make a trip to Cincinnati or the Wisconsin Dells.
Thank you, Adam Davidson. Don't go to the Dells now. It's really cold. I love <laughs> yeah. the Dells, but, they, but they it's got a those, summertime. They got those indoor <laughs> swimming pools at all the hotels, slides. Wait, what's that, Andrea? The duckies. Oh, I've been on those Dells duckies. Oh, the the, the boats. The, the boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. car boats. Oh, the they're people. not just a boat. They're I know. Also, it's, a car. Yeah, it's amazing. They don't have that at Lisbon. They have a lot of things, not that. Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money and co-host of Surprisingly Awesome Podcast. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's an antan twig named for the so-called amendment that blocks the CDC from researching gun violence. Oh, no, wait, that's the Dickey Amendment. Was there really a guy named Dickey or was there a conversation between two congressmen saying, you know, we'd really love to study gun violence, but we can't. You can't research it? That's kind of a dick move. Oh, wait, Steve, we're congressmen. You can't say that. You got to admit, it's kind of a Dickey Amendment. So maybe that's how it got its name. Actually, it got its name from Representative Jay Dickey, who has a Another famous amendment, you're not allowed to do embryonic research because of uh, an amendment that he and his fellow congressman Roger Wicker passed, and this was known as the Dickie Wicker Amendment. Yes, all throughout the 80s, you would always hear, sometimes, depending on what stations you listen to, reference to the Dickie Wicker Amendment. And of course, not since right honorable lords Talion Wacker impressed their will upon the parliament has such a pairing sought to undo the democratic process, Dickey and Wicker. I make mistakes. I'm going to say that Dickey made a mistake, but I make mistakes too. I was talking about Nicholas Maduro's shirt that he wears that looks like his country's flag. Now, why would the president of Venezuela wear a Colombian flag? I kept saying he wore a shirt like a Colombian flag. That's simple misspeak. I was also speaking of Columbia University, which really doesn't make sense. So that was a simple misspeak. Sometimes I misidentify. I got this email from listener Patrick Flynn, who said, as a professor of bad movies, yes, I do teach a course on bad movies. I must chime in on your error regarding the Batman franchise. Batman and Robin is indeed the film with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze and the terrible puns, but it starred George Clooney as Batman, not Val Kilmer. So I was talking about the pun-filled and terrible Batman and Robin. That was with George Clooney. Batman Forever was the one with Val Kilmer and Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. Both were directed by Joel Shoemaker. He recommends Superman for the quest for peace. Yeah, that is a terrible movie. So how bad, though, were Arnold Schwarzenegger's puns in Batman and Robin? Let's play a couple and give them some letter grades. The Iceman cometh. C minus. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. Little torture. D minus. In this universe, there's only one absolute. Everything. Yeah, you thought he's going somewhere with absolute zero. I'd give that one a D minus. What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age! Ooh, that did not flow. D minus. All right, everyone. Chill. 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 You're hardly even trying. F. There's so much wrong with that. Another F. So here, here's my idea. Here's, here's my pitch. You bring back Mr. Freeze. You don't take away the puns, but you don't leave it as a sideline. You, you got to let Schwarzenegger play him or maybe Werner Herzog, because I'm going to talk like him in a second. And uh, my Schwarzenegger sounds a little like Werner Herzog or any 
really bad German accent that you can imagine. But you have the puns be the driving force. Like, that's why he got into villainy. He just wanted to impose bad puns on the populace. So he needed a hook. He could be Zabaman or Zafriesman. There are so many puns dealing with Freeze. But all of his puns, like all of his schemes stem from trying to orchestrate something that gives rise to the puns. Like, in the movie, Batman and Robin, he attacks Robin and says something about, I mean, he tries to go somewhere with thawing your bird. It totally doesn't work. Here's what he has to say. He gets Robin. He's about to freeze him. And he says, what song is it you want to hear? Freeze bird. It's a terrible pun. But you can see why he's a tortured supervillain trying to impose his puns on our heroes. I put you in the I see you. And then, you know, Batman would be like, wait, I don't understand what kind of university. No, it's a pun. I see the ICU, the intensive care unit. Of course, if it was a university, it would issue 32 degrees. So there there could be some interplay there. You know, Batman could be like, oh, that's not too bad. And then they'd fight each other. All right. Another mistake. I misidentified the Terrence Malick movie as Nebraska. Nebraska was the Bruce Springsteen album about the incidents in the Terrence Malick movie named Badlands. Badlands, also a song by Bruce Springsteen, Malick, Springsteen, Martin Sheen, Death in Nebraska. It all comes full circle. I want to thank everyone who corrected me on that. And now I want to give out my Lopstar Award. Lopstar, the best listener, emailer, Facebooker, or interactor of the Antan Twig. This is the first anti-Lopstar. Got wind of this. Welcome to Helio. I don't know what Helio is, but just watch this announcement. After months of hard work, we're delighted to announce the launch of our platform for discovering and interacting with ideas from the world's great writers and thinkers. If you haven't already, take a look at our homepage, Facebook. So we're excited to launch The Gist the newsletter you're reading right now. Our mission is to bring you a weekly digest of ideas that you could use to apply lessons from science and technology to your daily life, from your morning routine to your office environment. In the spirit of the lean startup by Helio thought leader, Eric Reese, I'm out. Thought leader. He's a thought leader. There's nothing worse than thought leader. Maybe people who put the word humanitarian in their official bio. You know, they have other words for thought leader. Words like professor, economist, doctor, or, you know, hypnotist, demagogue, reality TV show producer, mentalist, David Koresh. These are all thought leaders. Oh, thought leader, do you lead thoughts in the mentality space? Do you meet other thought leaders at Pilates yoga, that's pilo classes, during ideas festivals? Oh, thought leader. So that's the anti-lobstar. Here is the lobstar. And I was all set to give it to Brian Jacobson, M.D., I don't know if he's a doctor or his middle names are Michael David, but it would be a cool ruse if that were the case. I think he might be a doctor. So Brian emails me and he notes that sometimes because of schedules, we do these Antan Twigs and there winds up being two in one month. And so he wanted to have a name for that. Now he was thinking about, you know, a blue moon is two full moons in one month. And he got into the etymology and it comes into the old English Bellui or betrayer moon. That's pretty cool. So he thought that the two antan twigs in a month could be disrumpery, which is disrupt in Latin, which got him thinking of Bootylicious by Destiny's Child. I don't think you're ready for this jelly. This jelly, disrumper, rump jelly. 
I have no idea what he's talking about here. I am definitely not going to name the phenomenon of two Antan twigs in a month anything from Destiny's Child or Jelly. But I just like the effort. I want to reward the effort. I'm not going to give him it, but I do like the effort. I want to reward the effort. I want to encourage that form of, let us say, nonlinear thinking. He's sort of a thought, well, if not a leader, he's, he's the point person for thought. I can't give him the lobster. You know why? I already gave him one. So he's a lobster emeritus. Here's what I'm giving the lobster to. A Twitter follower named Nickname. Nick is with Y. Maybe I've given him the lobster before. We really have terrible record keeping. But he's kind of a nudge. I mean, he gives, he really gives good feedback, but he'll always correct me when I'm wrong. And I hate being corrected like most people. But he's so consistent, and he's always right on with his corrections. I wound up appreciating it. He's sort of become like an ombudsman. The other day I said that, uh, I said, let's go from this hemisphere, talking about Europe. Let's change hemispheres. And then I started talking about Asia. As he rightly notes, Asia and almost all of Europe are in the same hemisphere. Eastern, also Northern Hemisphere. He has also, a few weeks ago, asked, have I ever used the phrase, Maria is a cornucovia of knowledge? No, I haven't, and I'm not going to, but I just like the fact that you're thinking. So nickname, you, sir, are the lobster of this Antan twig. That's it for today's show. Mike Volo produced it. I take cold comfort in that. Jason Gambrell engineered all hal his work. It's no exaggeration to say I couldn't have done it without him. Our executive producer is warm-hearted, not a wintry supervillain. You could say Andy Bowers and Mr. Freeze are polar opposites. The gist. Do you know, my dad's sister used to experience these weird spasms whenever she walked into MoMA, and I never understood why until my dad sat me down and explained in a heavy Teutonic accent, this Antarctic. Antarctic! is a cold region. She was my aunt. I'm really sorry about that. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>